Welcome back, everyone, to the Reflex Blue Show. I am your host, Donovan Beery, and returning with us is Kathy Solorana. And welcome, Antoinette Carroll. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me. And you're coming in to speak for AIGA tonight, or in this case, last week. <laughs> yes, I'm... This is not live, if you've not picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm coming to talk about design and social change and how, honestly, we can, can make our communities better. We just need to recognize the power that we already have. And then you're doing a workshop on Saturday. I am. It's called uh, Designing Inclusion and Equity. Essentially a merging of diversity inclusion training with civic engagement training with creative problem solving slash design thinking. It's it's very interesting how it works out. What's the goal of the workshop? What what do you want people to take from it? Or, or what, what is there supposed to be like an action that... That is formed from it? Because it's a four-hour workshop, yes, there is action that's formed okay. from it. I've done shorter, I, 35 minutes actually to be exact. I'm very happy that you did not ask me to do a 35-minute workshop. But essentially is to allow people to, one, learn more about their own implicit biases, learn more about what we even mean by diversity inclusion, but then also how do we come up with approaches and solutions to address many of these issues that's within our communities relevant to racial inequities, gender inequities, orientation, you know, so on and so on. So it's giving them kind of like this playlist and this playbook and skill set on challenging a lot of things that's in our backyard. And when you talk about diversity and inclusion, are you talking are we specific about the graphic design field that you're speaking about or one action sets beyond that? Oh, I'm so beyond that. Okay. I, I, I didn't know that <laughs> I mean, in, the work, in the workshop because I assume this mm -hmm. is geared because it's brought in through AIJ. It's geared towards graphic design. No, no. See, that's, oh, that's okay, one thing okay. about it. And that's actually why I'm a huge advocate of AIGA is because a few years ago they rebranded from the American Institute of Graphic Artists to the Professional Association of Design. And they didn't say, you know, Association of Graphic Design, but design. And because of that, I'm a huge proponent of how do we challenge how we define design in our community. Yes, we have designers that are craft-oriented and hand, letter, hand letterers and typographers and do amazing work. But then we also have designers that are strategists, that are researchers, that are anthropologists. And how do we bring all of those different approaches to the table to challenge these issues that are actually impacting all of our lives across the board. Okay. And, and so there will be more than designers at the workshop? Yes. So right now we're about 50-50. Um, we may, wanted to make sure that this, being that this is our very first uh, workshop we're doing, so we wanted to make sure that we were very inclusive. So we invited half guests of community leaders, social justice, partners and invite them and the other half are creatives and and people who are interested in in the particular subject that we're going to be covering and we wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they're going to come away with with some skills in terms of business development so they'll be able to utilize um, methodologies in terms of meeting facilitation and collaboration so that's going to be really cool so no matter who's going you're going to come away with some really good stuff to be mm -hmm. able to share and that's our goal to have this first one you know get everybody excited and then figure out I don't know how many we're going to do next but we'll we'll figure it out after this one. Oh, that's fantastic yep. it's around being action-oriented uh, a lot of the workshops and we can look at it from workshops within the diverse inclusion industry which I came from as working as a d designer or you can look at workshops in the design industry many workshops in the design industry is around craft you know we're we're going to talk about you know coding we're going to talk about 
uh, hand lettering. We're going to talk about how to create a logo, or you know, or as someone put it, how to do Aaron Draplin, you know, Futura design. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then in diverse inclusion space, most of the time is you know, how do we have dialogues? How do we have conversations? How do we recognize our own upbringings and how that has impacted our interactions with others and and essentially how our perceptions is not always as open as we think they are. And so for me, I'm like, how do we bring these two methodologies together in which I call them dialogue and action workshops? Because it's about having conversation, it's about, you know, really learning from each other, but then it's also about how do we take that and then start to apply you know, creative problem solving to challenge the issues that's in our communities, such as racism or sexism. Okay. Well, oh, sorry. No. And I wanted to add to that. I mean, the, what I'm really excited about is not only to learn from Antoinette in terms of how to run something like that and how to start to think about all of our channel, cha challenges in ways that everyone can understand and, and get to so that we can find solutions. But it's also, I want to really look at with everybody there from a different perspective to be able to see that creative problem solving, no matter where it comes from, is a, is a great way to attack those challenges. And so hopefully we can start a movement here in terms of working together. Mm -hmm. And that's a real, real big goal to get all these creatives that are coming on that side of it and all these community leaders that are coming here and see each other as a unified front that can have a conversation and develop solutions. Mm -hmm. So that's really a huge thing. And this, I hope, is one of many to come. And, and, and what is the, is, is the talk tonight about the workshop, or is it completely opposite of, is it just kind of talking about the same things, but without the action plan, I guess? <laughs> or is it just the 35 minute version of the workshop? No, no. No, the talk tonight is, is essentially talking about my journey of moving from a traditional nine to five graphic designer to a social entrepreneur and community activist and diversity inclusion practitioner, but then also giving individuals the knowledge and tips on how to become change makers in their communities. And so I, I don't just tell my story. I don't just show a portfolio of the work that we've done, but I'm also telling them this is how you can do something in your community. This is how you can ultimately change the world. And I know I've seen plenty of shirts where it's like, designers don't change the world. But, you know, I challenge that because when you really look around our community, everything around us has been designed. We just don't call it, call it that. I mean, the clothes we're wearing, the way we walk down the street, even our policies have been designed. And until we start to recognize the power design has in our community, we're not going to change anything in our community. And so when I give my talk, I'm essentially trying to encourage and challenge and empower creatives and people from, you know, policy sector or whatever sectors they're coming from, that they can co-create together to ultimately transform our urban centers. Yeah, because if, if, if creatives don't change the world, then who does? I honestly believe that we all have the capacity to be creative. You know, we have the designers that have the BFA or, you know, can do something in Creative Cloud and Photoshop, you know, congratulations, good for you. You have that technical skill. No one's taking that away from you. I don't think no one should take it away from you. However, I do believe that we need to, as designers, we need to learn how to become participants when we're trying to create community change, opposed to now trying to be facilitators. And that's a difference in the way that we're being taught right now in design thinking, which I find interesting being taught because we kind of innately just do 
the work that we're doing. Sure. Um, but, you know, we, as designers, we've always been fighting and arguing and trying to find a way to prove our value to the world. And because it's not quantifiable majority of the time, we're not Nielsen. We don't have, hey, we had this amount of impressions on this poster and this is what design did. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder to kind of prove that case. And so many people are kind of jumping on the design thinking and creative problem solving bandwagon because it's a way that the business sector is buying into it. The, the world essentially is buying into design as a form of thinking. But when doing community work, you can't just take this, this process and put it in a community and expect it to work. And so I, I'm telling people, yes, you have the skills. Yes, you can still be a facilitator. But at the end of the day, the work we do, we're doing it as consultants or as one of the presenters I saw at Creative South this past week, she said that designers are like prostitutes. <laughs> oh, whoa. Whoa. Am I going to get in trouble for casting that check they sent me? I don't, I don't really know about that. And it was, it, she said it's because of how design was presented to her in school. You okay. know, we do this work for clients and, you know, we work to make them happy and they pay for it. I mean, when you take strip away what we're doing, yeah, it yeah, does yeah. sound like prostitution. Well, uh, opening, up, opening up Word files does give you that feeling anyway. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's it's like, how do we remove ourselves from that consulting mindset when we're really trying to change what's happening within our own neighborhoods is no longer hey i'm the facilitator i'm the consultant is hey i'm i'm your neighbor let's co-create together to challenge these issues yeah not everything we do has to be for clients exactly it can be for ourselves it can be for the people that we know mm-hmm 100 mm-hmm. okay well we're going to be right back with kathy and antoinette all right antoinette you're, you're from your, your studio is in ferguson so I am a former Ferguson resident, but okay. my my nonprofit is not in Ferguson. And so I, I the reason why I said nonprofit opposed to studios, I want to make a clear distinction. Okay. Um, Creative Reaction Lab distinctly works with. And, and where do people go to find out more about Creative Reaction Lab? Um, you go to our website, creativereactionlab.com, okay. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, even though we don't really use that that much. Right. Creativereactionlab.com. And Instagram. Okay. Yep. Uh, and Creative Reaction Lab, we are a nonprofit uh, that works with cities to come up with solutions around issues r related to race, particularly for the black and Hispanic communities. And our primary focus now is on youth and having them co-create solutions together, addressing issues that's impacting both of their communities. And so with Ferguson, you know, as being a former resident, we were started in response to what happened in 2014. But what's interesting is that many people assume that Ferguson is its own little city. It's like a few blocks. It's, oh, not, okay. that, it's not that big of a big of a an area. It's St. Louis, Missouri is actually the city. And I, a lot of my friends, even when they come in town, are like, take me to Ferguson. And I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like two streets, but okay. Um, but, you know, we, we've done work in Ferguson. We continue to work with uh, individuals around St. Louis, but then we also continue to do work around the nation. Okay. And and what and, and did you have a studio before that, before the Creative Action Labs? So I worked, I did corporate. I worked in-house. I also... Um, worked with nonprofits as well as agency. And so I did kind of the gambit uh, in the creative field. I also went through a lot of different transitions in design. And so I came through the advertising and marketing route. And that's why I did a lot with like agency, DDB. And 
working in my last position at a nonprofit, the reason why they hired me is because I was a jack of all trades. I can I can create the logo while also doing a digital strategy at the same time. Uh, and that's because I always had the intention of working in nonprofit and so I knew I had to kind of diversify my skill set. When you when you went into the Creative Action Labs, you've actually been also working with your local AIGA chapter to get involved to, to kind of push, and, and I believe that's part of it, I mean, that's the reason Kathy mm -hmm. brought you in is because you've been pushing your local and then the national board to do more diversity inclusion. Correct, correct. Uh, with Creative Reaction Lab, um, <laughs> AIGA St. Louis was technically our first partner. Uh, I will not say it was the easiest route to get kind of buy-in for it, and that's kind of the case with any diversity and inclusion work. You know, many people question, you know, why we should be in a diversity and inclusion space. I've even heard, you know, especially... Well, what's, what's your answer when they question that? Well, to me, I look at the, the impact of design diversity and inclusion in two ways. You know, I see it in the way that most people consider, which is how do we make our industry more diverse and representative of our audience itself? Because with us being consultants, we can't... Re I mean, look at the Pepsi commercial as an example right. of <laughs> lack of diversity. But, I mean, the list goes on and on. And when you don't have true representation at the table, you tend to exclude when creating. And that's thinking about not only color, but also thinking about ability status, thinking about context. You need to have diversity or representation at the table. But then on the other end, especially as someone that worked in a diversity and inclusion space, I'm always bringing up the point of the visual language of diversity and inclusion that's being depicted out in our community. As designers, we have the responsibility to create the language around whatever we're promoting, and yet when you Google diversity and inclusion, you usually see either multicolored individuals or you see the rainbow. And I like CMYK like everyone else and Pantone and everything. Sure, sure. However, if we continue to use only colors to depict diversity and inclusion, whether it's a logo, whether it's a poster, then people are still going to assume when we say diversity that we're only talking about race. And so for me, I see the impact and the need kind of twofold. And, you know, we we really have power to kind of create change in both. And what is, and what is, and then so once you got buy-in from the local AIGA chapter, mm -hmm. then did, was it was the other buy-ins easier, like if you had somebody in another organization in, or is it still just as tough when you when you go to other organizations? It's not as tough when, on the opposite end with the community, one of the challenges is for them to understand what role design is actually playing within the space. And so I've shown it in two ways. Either I've shown them actual prototypes and renderings of things, and then they're like, oh, I get it. Or and I will be very honest, I code switch. I changed the language. I've, okay. I've not used design before. I've used, that's why I tend to use creative problem solving. And it's because people understand creative problem solving. And I honestly believe design thinking, it, it has methodologies and processes in it that came from the scientific method in the science field, that came from anthropology, that came from the diverse inclusion space. You know, now it's empathy, but, you know, it was called cultural humility and competency in the diverse inclusion space. <laughs> uh, you know, and so that's why I don't really say design thinking as often because it honestly is a hodgepodge of everything. And so when approaching people outside of the design industry, I tend to say creative problem solving because they can relate to that and they can see it as being applicable to their own personal growth. 
And, you know, that's kind of the best way I've seen it kind of come across. But interestingly enough, I've received more support outside of my hometown than I have inside of it. Oh, that is interesting. Do, mm -hmm. do you think there's a reason for it, or do you just think it's because when, when you're in your hometown, you're never an expert? <laughs> I think that's part of it, and, and that's any case in any city. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, and it, because we just had an article in Fast Company, and I received notes from, I've received notes from people around the world. Um, it's, I remember when Sweden sent me that, that wonderful message and was like, I don't know what your president was talking about, but, you know, <laughs> um, but we love your article on Fast Company. Um, but then in my own city, you know, it, it, there's a reason why I created it in the first place. And St. Louis is literally the sixth most segregated city in the nation. Oh, wow. Uh, we used to be the fifth. So I guess we should be happy that either someone got worse than us or we got better. I don't know which one yet. Okay. Um, and so, you know, there, we created it out of a need. And so there, we have to get more buy-in from our city because there's a need in our city. And But many times they don't recognize that there's a need in our city. And then, and then you actually had a workshop in St. Louis that, or, or a conference where, and that's, that is actually how Kathy got involved and, and why AIG Nebraska, AIG Nebraska now has a diversity chair. Yes, uh, in St. Louis, we have a conference called the Design Plus Diversity Conference. It is uh, was co-founded by myself and my colleague, Timothy Hikes. It actually came from his senior thesis project in college, uh, which came from the work we were doing at the National Task Force that I founded in 2014. Uh, I, I don't sleep much, if you haven't <laughs> um, And But the, the point of this conference was to, to kind of hit on those two points that I mentioned. You know, how do we make our, one, not only make our industry more diverse, but how do we highlight the work that's already being done in our industry? There's a lot of people doing fantastic work around ability status. There's people, like, just look at Jennifer Kenning and her team and the work they did with the Hillary Clinton campaign. They had to outright deal with sexism with developing this piece. You know, there was other elements there, but they had to essentially rebrand Hillary so that to try to make her, you know, stronger for one crowd, nicer for the other crowd, and this and that. And, you know, it's you when you really start to catapult and kind of highlight these works that's already being done, I honestly think you start to change the narrative and change people's mind and they start to see that, hey, there's actually something that I can do within my own industry that doesn't require me to kind of move into a different space. So what can we do in our design industry that doesn't require us to move into a different space? You know, I, I think it's, one is just determining your mission of what's important to you. Uh, one, the, the, I'm just giving one tip. You're not going to get all because I'll say it's But the first tip about it that I always tell people is that, you know, you have your craft, your expertise, your talent, but you have to determine your mission. For me, my mission is dealing with issues of racial inequities and inequalities. I decided that that's going to be my focus in my life. But for someone else, it could be as simple as the lack of playgrounds in their community. It could be looking at food deserts. It could be looking at gentrification. It could be looking at women's rights. But until you define what your mission is, you're not going to be able to accomplish anything you, you kind of are working towards because ultimately it becomes a client job. Sure. I mean, let's look at it in the context of when we do work for clients. When we love the work that we're doing, when we believe in what they're doing, we give our best work. When we don't care, we tend to... Can I curse on this podcast? <laughs> we keep it low, but you know what I mean. Well, but we tend to have... ASS it, okay? Yeah. You know, we don't give our best unless maybe they're giving us a whole bunch of money. But, <laughs> you know, it's 
we tend to throw ourselves into something more when we feel a connection to it. And it's the same when doing community work. If you don't have a connection to the topic that you're trying to address, you're ultimately going to make it like it's a job. The work I do is not, it's not a job for me. It's a passion, it's a career, and it's my mission. And so as designers, first you need to figure out what your mission is and then try to figure out how can I use the skill that I have to address this mission and work with people that's already in the space. Too many times we're trying to recreate our wheels. You know, how many quote posters do we need to do? How many, you know, different projects? Hey, I'm just going to do this in the comfort in front of my computer. Move away from the computer. Go into the community and actually talk to people and meet people where they are. Don't expect them to come to you because it's not happening. You need to go well, they don't. They yeah, are. they don't know who you are. They don't know, know who you are. I mean, but, you know, even if they knew, they might have things in their life. Like a, um, a colleague of mine, she's the chief resilience officer uh, at the, the city of Boston, and she was tasked at looking at how do we make our city more resilient, particularly looking at issues of uh, social vulnerabilities and race. And you know what she did? She didn't just hold a town hall like most elected people or people in government and say, come to me. She went and got on buses and went on different subways and went to people's churches and actually went into their communities and engaged with them. And she didn't just talk. She, what we like to call radically listened it wasn't about her it was about listening to what they wanted and what they needed and it's the same as a designer you have to listen and not just say i want to if you're saying i want to create this for my own ego then recognize that it's for your ego and you're probably you may be doing more harm than good no that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. so and and when you say like to do the things you love too you realize even if even if you really put everything into your design work when you look back at your best work, you're like, oh, the ones you're happiest with are the ones you actually had that connection with. Exactly. Exactly. I can I can literally point out design projects. I'm like, I really enjoyed that. I can point out design projects that I enjoyed at the beginning because I agreed with the mission, but then working with clients really made me want to pull my hair out. And I was like, you ruined a masterpiece. Uh, and then I remember projects in which you know it was given to me, it was an assignment, and I honestly hated it. I was just like, I okay, because it's my job, I have to, but then I'm a person that believes in happiness and living your life through happiness. You spend more time at work than you do anywhere else, and so if I'm not happy with the job, I will leave you. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. All right, we'll be right back with uh, Antoinette Carroll and Kathy Solano. So how many of these labs have you been doing? How many of these workshops? So... The labs uh, originally was a 24-hour model, and yes, some people did not sleep. Was Kiefer um, Sutherland, did he, did he moderate <laughs> please, please tell me Kiefer Sutherland moderated them. No. Oh, no. Oh. It was that's me. That's where you went wrong. I know. And that's no, probably that's... why we don't do them anymore. Only Kiefer Sutherland can do 24 hours straight. It's not possible for us. Oh, no matter. one else. The struggle was real. Um, but, you know, we, we held, um, three different 24 hour labs. And that's because I live my life through this lens of, uh, failure. I don't see failure as a bad sure. thing. I see fra failure as, um, eternal lessons. And so I'm always looking at how do we improve? Are we really trying to create the impact we're trying to make? So when we first started, the initial reaction was a 24 hour lab distinctly looking at the issues of racial inequality and police brutality, because that's what we were dealing with in our community and has kind of popped up in other communities around the nation. And at the time we had 
12 primarily designers. You have some technologists. You have some um, activists in the room that worked 24 hours straight, came up with over 60 ideas, but ultimately worked on five throughout the night. But I didn't require them to just, I, well, one of the things I told them that they could not do is they could not design a poster or a traditional design response. So they had to think larger. And I also made them also think of them as businesses. I didn't care if you were creating a public art project, what's your mission statement, what's your budget, who's your community partners, very much holistic because I want to think about it through the lens of sustainability and really implementing it in the community. And so at that time of the five, we had ideas uh, or projects ranging from uh, media framing and narration. One was called Cards Against Brutality, okay. uh, which is obviously a play on Cards Against Humanity, and it is nothing like that game whatsoever. Uh, but Cards Against Brutality was directly looking at the the labels that we put on victims and now how even the term thug is like the new n-word essentially oh. uh and so they were reframing that and saying opposed to calling them a thug opposed to calling them you know criminals or you know why were they doing this and that actually see them as who they were which was you know students someone's father someone's brother someone's sister someone's mother uh and how do we have constructive dialogue around that and so it was It was a card set that was also a curriculum, educational tool and curriculum piece that was used in high schools, actually still being used in high school right now, uh, colleges, as well as local nonprofits. But then we had other responses, which were, like I said, some were public art, but one was technology-based called um, uh, Connector for Justice. And the idea was that was essentially... Match.com, you know, like, or Tinder, where you're trying to find the love or maybe a side piece or whatever you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Or just another client. You know, or, you know, <laughs> maybe a client. <laughs> that's how we treat clients anyway. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the idea with Connected for Justice was to support people that wanted to do work around this but didn't want to go to a protest or didn't have the time. So they came up with ideas. They put them on the site or built profiles of the ideas on the site. And then other people came to the site to help them make it happen. When uh, it was shut down in November 2014, which it was only supposed to be open for protest, so this was intentional. Okay. Um, it they had over 768 actions that came from that site, and that project itself has actually turned into a framework uh, called Civic Match, which is led by uh, DeAndre Nichols and a company called Civic Creatives. And so it, it really was around, you know, how do we challenge designers and creatives to move a little bit outside of their traditional mode of thinking. Like, in that sense, it still was designed. You know, you had a website, you had a card deck. But moving beyond that uh, to to challenge these very much, honestly, designed and somewhat permanent issues uh, that's within our community. Okay. And, and, I, and, then, and then I assume that the, the, the goal of all of this is, is to first open a dialogue because if no one's talking about it, nothing's going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. I, from that lab alone, I remember one uh, distinct moment in which there was an idea brought up around how do we address the issue of the talk in the African-American community. Now, the African-Americans in the room knew exactly what this was. It was like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, what's you know, the talk? Yeah. <laughs> and then the other three-fourths of the room was like, wait a minute, what's the talk? Uh, and the talk is essentially um, what we do in the African-American community where parents talk to their children around safety and assimilation and how we should act and how we should be around people. It's around giving kind of the, the manual for code switching, uh, as we like to say. And so, like, I have different faces 
for different settings. You know, I, in as my family, they see a different internet, the more natural internet than someone in a corporate setting. I'm not saying this is not like that in other races, but in majority of the setting, times, we have to think about how am I being perceived, am I being perceived as an angry black woman, you know, is someone afraid of me because I'm black and they're walking across the street because, believe me, cultural fear is real, there's actual data on that, and so, you know, we try to present ourselves in a different manner because we were taught to or, you know, people will perceive us differently, and so I've been personally treated differently based on what I've worn. I've had on business suits and everyone treat me fine. And then as soon as I put on comfortable clothes, I've been literally treated in very disrespectful ways in the same company. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, it with the talk is essentially teaching you how to assimilate and how to survive, whether it's dealing with police or honestly dealing with people that, you know, think, don't I won't say they don't like you, but there's unconscious biases and kind of assumptions and stereotypes about you just based on your color. Once once you bring up this the talk to a group and you tell them this, what what's the response they they give you, or what do you what's the response you want from it? Actually, it, you know the response is always I had no idea, which is usually the case. You yeah. know it, when it comes, I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought of it. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of what we know what's in our environment in our bubble, and that you know they brought it up a lot with the elections and how Facebook actually made things worse or but I would argue it's a lot of social media accounts it's not just Facebook that you know we created our own echoing chambers but the reality is we've always had our echoing chambers you know we've always had what was around us and that's what we thought that we thought that reflected the world because that's what we saw you know it's just think of it in the sense of if you were to ask a fish a fish could talk so bear with me <laughs> but if you were to ask a fish house of water they will be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Go away. Something's wrong with you. There is no water because that's their environment. When I was growing up in poverty and I don't shy away from my background and, you know, my upbringing, I didn't know I was poor. I didn't know, you know, that I didn't have the same access and opportunities as others. I thought making $19,000 a year was a goal in life. That was my goal because that's what I saw. And that the individuals that made that amount of money, they were put on pedestals because that's what we saw as the norm and what you should strive towards. It wasn't until I went to college in which I gained, and I'm a first-generation college student, that I gained access and saw that there were people reading books and know, they knew about authors that I hadn't even heard of and they read it back in middle school. And so I'm automatically trying to catch up, but, you know, it's one where... You couldn't have told me that when I was in my community because I would have no idea of what you're talking about. I, for me, I wasn't poor. I just, on TV, when you see poor, you see something different, you know? So it's like when, when trying to address many of these injustices and inequalities and inequities in our world, the first thing we have to do is, one, evaluate our own personal world and step outside of it. And that's not just going to a training, which some people, many people are actually starting to do now to open their environment, but going to different settings than you normally would. Because if not, then you're just ultimately going to think that that is how the world functions and how it goes. No, and, and, I, and I think that's why, like, designers, when they, you'll, you'll hear them and they say go travel, because it's kind of the same mm -hmm. thing. It's like, see as much as you can, because it, you, you can bring it back to your own work and your own design and your own life. Oh, very much so. I, I will say, working at the last... 
nonprofit where I was head of communications. It was at a nonprofit called Diverse Awareness Partnership. It opened my eyes as a designer because I was working with individuals that were visually impaired. I was working with people that, with individuals that had a different lifestyle than myself. And, you know, as designers, we love our small type. That's like the staple. Yeah. So how dare you go over 8.5? <laughs> you know? And I've, I've seen these designs more and more receive awards. It's like, that poster was beautiful. It was fantastic. And then it's like, but it's illegible. No one can even read that. And it's supposed to promote something. And, you know, working with these individuals helped me even see how I was leading my own design practice through my own lens of bias and my perception of what I thought the world would be. So I can read the eight point font because I am a contact on. <laughs> now if I take them off, that's a different story. But in my mind that was fixable, right? It's not like that for everyone. And so even now when I watch videos and there's videos in which you only hear music or you have someone to say, and this and this and this, but that's all you're hearing is like, and this, and then the, the scenes keep, keep flipping to show like different imagery. Someone that's visually impaired have no, they have no idea what's going on. Nothing whatsoever. And by working at that institution, it, it helped me become a more inclusive designer as well as a more inclusive individual. And so for me, I'm always like on this journey on how do I continue to challenge my assumptions and my beliefs and my practices so that I can be more inclusive for others. Well, Antoinette, we really thank you for coming by. And, and thank you very much for visiting Nebraska and, and for what will be a great talk and workshop tomorrow. Thank you for having Kathy, me. Kathy, thank you for bringing Antoinette in. Thank you. I had a great and time. And we look forward to it. For, for all the listeners, go out and meet other people. Get out. And then, uh, of course, force your local AIGA chapter to get a diversity chair on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And don't forget, we've got Human Library coming up on May 17th down at the Oma Public Library. And what that event is all about is being able to come there, meet and talk to a person for about 20, 30 minutes, and be able to, they'll share their story. You can ask them any question. Yeah, they say you check out a book, but the book's just a person. Correct. The mm -hmm. book is a person. And so it's all about overcoming bias and stereotype. And so it runs from 4.30 to 7.30 on May 17th at the Omaha Public Library downtown. That'll be on the fourth floor. So uh, we've got our Facebook page up um, on uh, for AIJ. So go ahead and head to the Facebook page, take a look at it. We'll have the full list of all the books available in a couple of weeks, and we'll keep going. Then we've got a summer a mentorship series set up for North Omaha student, middle school students. They'll be heading to Irvin and Smith, an ad agency. Uh, then they'll be heading off to HDR to take a look at architecture, interior design, and in-house design. And then we're working on our third one, but hopefully Flywheel or Hay Needle to have them look on the tech side. So we're going to bring those middle school students to all of those aspects and kind of get a, a story for them from them at the end of the, the summer. And then maybe do one more human library and a couple other workshops coming up in the fall. Yeah, and if this, if this could all happen in Omaha, Nebraska, obviously if, if you're from somewhere else, it can be happening there if it's not already. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. And this was all my inspiration from meeting this woman back in June at the, the, the Design and Diversity Conference in St. Louis. Was it a 24-hour one? No, it was, it was not a 24-hour one. And I'll have to tell you about my parking another time. All right. Thanks so much. We'll, we'll be back soon. 
Reflex Blue Show with Donovan Beery is hosted at 36point.com. Music by Dustlab. Find out more at myspace.com slash dustlab. Thank you.